If today is an average day in the United States of America, there will be 10,501 births. There will be 8,838 Americans who become teenagers, 35 who will become 100 years of age. There will be 5,937 people in America who will die if today is a normal day in the United States of America. There will be 104 people who will be injured while shaving in America today. There will be 153 who will be injured due to a chainsaw, and hopefully that won't be in Texas. All right. Thank you, brother. I knew somebody would fess up. That's good. Thank you, Lord. There will be 1,546 biking accidents today, if today is a typical day in the United States of America. There will be 16,300,000 people who will eat at McDonald's today, if today is a normal day. And I want to be on record, I will not be one of them. And this is phenomenal. 524 million servings of Coca-Cola will be imbibed today if today is a normal day. And 965,000 will be for breakfast. It's too late for most of you for breakfast. That's a lot of Coca-Cola, isn't it? Certainly it is. There will be 35,932 Bibles sold in America if today is a normal day. But here's an amazing statistic. There will be 45,122 X-Men comics bought today, more than Bibles in America, if this is a normal day. Love Me Tender will air 433 times today. And there will be four calls to Graceland to see if the person who makes the call can speak to Elvis But as they will soon discover, those four people, the king is still dead. His remains are buried on the grounds of his estate to prove the fact. Well, I'm here today to affirm what we've been affirming for the last hour. The king of kings is alive. This is his own self-description. He is the first and the last, the living one, who was dead and now is alive forever and ever. He has been raised from the dead. So the question... Amen. So the question that I would like to ask this passage of Scripture and assorted other passages is just who is Easter for? Well, there are three categories of people represented by three well-known biblical figures that are in that group of people that Easter is for. The first, in verse 5, says... Jesus appeared to Cephas. You may be wondering, who is Cephas? You may remember in the first chapter of the book of John, when Paul met Simon, he said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which translated is Peter. So when we see Cephas, we know it's a reference to the apostle Peter. So he first appeared to Peter. Do you know why he appeared to Peter? We know, don't we? It's because Peter denied Jesus. After having vehemently disagreed with Jesus, 
when Jesus said about him and his associates in the apostolic group that they would all disown him. And he said, if all these other fellows leave you, Lord, I will not. And then a little later, Jesus reiterated that. And he says, if I have to go to death with you, Jesus, I will never disown you. This first category includes those who have disowned the Lord Jesus Christ. The seeds for Simon Peter's disowning of the Lord Jesus Christ were sown, I believe, in the moment when he declared that Jesus is the Christ of God. And then right after that, you may remember what happened. What happened right after that was that Jesus began to reiterate what he had already said to his apostles, that he was going to have to go to Jerusalem. He was going to be punished to the point of being crucified. Then he would be raised again on the third day. And then Peter comes up to the Lord and he's feeling really good about himself now since he's been complimented so highly by Jesus. And he draws him aside and he says to him in a rebuking manner, Jesus, you need to rethink this. And then Jesus glances over at the other apostles who were there. And he turns to Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan. You are thinking like a man, concerned for the interests of man rather than the interests of God. Do you know what the interest of God is as it relates to you and me? Especially as we think about what Christ has done for us in His death and then what the Father has done for us by raising Him from the dead. God's interest in you is that you be saved from your sin. And remember, as he was flanked on either side by two criminals, one of whom said to him, save yourself and save us. And the mockers came by and they said the same thing which these two criminals had said to the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that the way of man? We're all about preserving ourselves. Remember what Jesus says, whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels shall save it. In other words... People who sell out to the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the way to ensure that you will really know God through Jesus Christ. So, when Peter rebuked Jesus at Caesarea Philippi on the Mediterranean coast, the seeds for his disowning the Lord were sown. Then, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus entered the garden... He had his 11 apostles. One was already gone, Judas. He was doing his dastardly deed at that time. But the 11 go in. Jesus singles out the three who were closer to him. Peter, James, and John. And he takes them into a deeper part of the garden. The Garden of Gethsemane was one of Jesus' favorite places to go to have communion with the Father. And he goes and he says to them, Watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I want you to hang out here together, and I want your support when I go into the innermost part of the garden where I can do business with my Father. And you remember what happened then? Jesus goes into the garden, and Luke tells us, Luke, remember, was a physician. He was interested in all things physical and spiritual and historical. But when he depicts Jesus in the garden, the Bible says that Jesus sweat what looked like great drops of blood. 
in his agonies. He agonized with the Father. He said, Father, if it's possible, please take this cup from me. In other words, Lord, if there's any way this fulfillment of the redemption of mankind can be fulfilled any other way besides my having to go to the cross, and as daunting as crucifixion was, that was part of Jesus not wanting to drink the cup. But the cup he was going to drink was the wrath of God. He drank it to the last drop, we know. When he comes out of the garden, he finds Peter asleep along with James and John. And he said, could you not pray, watch with me for one hour? Now here's a hint for us. Remembering that in order to disown someone, we must first have at one time had a close relationship with that one. Paul, excuse me, Peter says in the book of Mark, chapter 10, verse 28, for himself and the other apostles, we have left everything to follow you. We have given it all, Lord, to follow you. And then we know, as I've already mentioned, that he confessed Christ as the Son of God. He was close, but he began to gradually drift. Here's where the drift many times occurs. I've seen it in my own life is that I take a shortcut in my relationship to the Lord. I don't relish spending time alone with Him like I once did. I let the pressures of the world, and believe me, Peter and his companions were under incredible pressure. I'm not taking a pot shot at him. I'm using him as an example that we can identify with so that we won't make the same mistake that he made by disowning the Lord. And then when the temple guard came, led by Judas the traitor, to arrest Jesus, the Bible says, all the apostles scattered like a covey of quail. Peter being among them, he deserted the Lord. He deserted the Lord Jesus. He disowned Him. But all of a sudden, where there had been a very difficult time for him to keep his eyelids open because of the heaviness of the pressure of the event that was taking place, all of a sudden he had an adrenaline rush, I'm sure. And he followed Jesus, the Bible says, from a distance. Now here's a problem too. It's difficult, in fact it's impossible, not to disown Jesus if we follow Him from a distance. Are you following Him from a distance? It's a dangerous place from which to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And before we know it, we see him in the courtyard of the high priest Caiaphas. And he's not just hanging out in the shadows. He's hanging out with members of the temple guard who had arrested Jesus. And he's not just hanging out chatting with them. He's at a fire warming himself. It was a chilly early spring morning like today before dawn. And he's cold and he's warming himself there. This is indicative of what happens to us. When we follow Jesus from a distance, here's what happens. We begin to identify more with the world than we do with the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of James chapter 4 says that friendship with the world is hostility to God. Jesus says, you're either for me or you're against me. If you're for me, awesome, but he who is not for me is against me. In that moment, Peter had become hostile, believe it or not, toward the one who he had left everything 
to follow. We need to be careful about warming ourselves at the fire of the world. We need to be careful not to let the world squeeze us, as J.B. Phillips translates Romans 12:2, into its own mold. The world is very adept at gradually, this didn't happen overnight, this is a gradual thing for Peter. It doesn't happen overnight in our lives when we disown the Lord. It's not like we wake up one morning and say, I'm going to disown the Lord. Remember, just a short while later, earlier rather, Peter had said, I'm not going to deny you. I'm not going to disown you. And lo and behold, in a matter of a few hours, he had done just that. I think of what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He says, fan into flame the gift of God which was given to you by the laying on of hands by elders. And the idea of fanning into flame, it's the idea of you've waked up some morning, I'm sure, and you've had a fire in your fireplace or a campfire. When you went to sleep, it was burning brightly. You wake up in the morning and it looks like the fire is dead and you begin to stir around, poking around in the ashes. And all of a sudden you see a little ember that still has some warmth and life in it. And you begin to blow on it. And before long, when you put some kindling on it, it begins to regenerate. And there's the fire again. This is the message to you today. If you have in any way disowned, if you've begun down the path of disowning the Lord, this is the message for you. Fan into flame the gift of God that is in you. The gift of the Holy Spirit who is in you. That's what the Lord would say to you. Learn from the mistakes of Peter. And remember that Easter is for you. It's for those who have disowned the Lord Jesus Christ. Easter had a great impact upon Peter, right? How do we know? It was he who was given the awesome privilege and responsibility to preach on Pentecost. And if you've ever tried to read that sermon, it's contained in Acts chapter 2, probably won't take you more than four or five minutes to read aloud. And 3,000 people came into the family of God that day. Talk about power. That's power, wouldn't you say? Here was a man who was virtually powerless in many settings when you read the Gospels. But now he's preaching this message and the power of the Spirit was on him and people were born again. 3,000. Unbelievable. He was a humbler man. In Acts 10, he is given orders to go to the house of a man by the name of Cornelius who was a centurion, a God-fearer, a Gentile, a man who wanted to know the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what we see is... He comes there when he gets to the entryway of this centurion's home. Cornelius comes and the Bible says in Acts 10, 26, he falls down and he worships Peter. Peter says, get up. I can see him stooping over and helping Cornelius up off the ground. And he says, I am just a man like you. Do you know what happens when you, perhaps who have disowned Jesus, make a turnaround and you see the eyes of Jesus looking at you just as sure as they looked into the eyes of Peter in that courtyard of Caiaphas. And he ran out and he wept bitterly. When you begin to see yourself and you are honest enough with yourself to identify 
disownership of Christ in your life, then the response is you are changed when you humble yourself before Him and when you realize that He wants to rule your life as your Lord. And remember what He says about Himself? Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am humble in heart. Where did the humility come in Peter's life? It came from the presence of Jesus in his life. And he was martyred. He was condemned to crucifixion. But he requested that he not be crucified in the conventional way as Jesus was, but that he be crucified upside down because he did not feel worthy to be crucified the way in which his Lord was crucified. So dishonors, be aware. The Easter time is for you. The resurrection is for you. But there's another category. It's for those who are doubters. I would imagine there's some doubters in the room today. Let's look at verse 7. Then he appeared to James. We talk about Thomas the doubter. Really, James is the big doubter. Why do we know that? In John chapter 7, verse 5, the Bible says, even Jesus' brothers were not believing. Now think about it. Jesus had four half-brothers and at least two half-sisters. The product of the union between Mary and Joseph after Jesus had been born. The four brothers, James, who wrote the book of James, by the way, James, and then Joseph, one of the sons named after Daddy, and then the next one, Simon, and one named Judas. We know him as Jude. He gave us the epistle of Jude. Here these four boys were, James being the older. So James was the standard bearer for the rest of the family. Can you imagine having Jesus for your big brother? It could be good, but it could be really tough too. Because he never did anything wrong. Can you imagine never doing anything wrong? What a bummer to have such a big brother. And so I would imagine there was quite a bit of sibling rivalry. And it's worth noting again that Jesus had a one-on-one with James after he was raised from dead. As surely as he had that one-on-one with Peter, he had it with James. James, with his brothers, sisters, according to Mark's Gospel, seeing Jesus come back after he had tabbed out of all the disciples who followed him, twelve to be his apostles, and Jesus is teaching in his hometown. And so here comes James leading the troop, and they come outside the place where Jesus is teaching, and they send someone inside, and they say, would you go in and tell our big brother that he's out of his mind and it's time for him to come home? Do you think that's a doubting statement? Well, of course it is. They said he's lost his mind. He's crazy. He's delusional. He's calling himself the Son of God, the Messiah. And then Jesus says in Mark chapter 6, verse 4, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. Now listen to this. And except among his relatives. James was one of his relatives. And so, here Jesus appears to James, the doubter. Listen carefully to this question. Have you become too familiar with Jesus? Have you just gotten a little inoculation of Jesus? Understand, 
that there is no such thing as a hand-me-down religion. James undoubtedly had worn hand-me-downs from Jesus. He didn't want any of Jesus' religion. He was tired of getting hand-me-downs. You have to know Jesus personally. The Bible says, but as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. We have to individually receive Christ, putting aside our doubt and following Christ. Are you here and find yourself resenting Jesus because He has let you down? He did not come through for you at a critical time in your life. And you are a doubter as a result. Well, look, Jesus came to give you life and give it more abundantly. But if I understand correctly, we are to be His servants. And that is our primary role. We're to bring glory to Him and take care of His business as He gives us instruction as to how to do that, empowering us to do that. So if you're a doubter, you're resentful toward the Lord, realize that Jesus Christ loves you. Even if you, like Peter, deserted Him, and the rest of the apostles deserted Him, and you have denied Him, and you have disowned Him, you have not stood by Him, Jesus Christ loves you. And He's calling you back to Himself today, if that happens to be your story. What about James? What difference did it make in his life when... He introduces his book, James 1.1. He says, James, a bondservant, that means a slave, of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't say, of my brother Jesus of Nazareth. He says, the Lord Jesus Christ. He had become a bondservant of this one whom he had resented and doubted. Why? Because Jesus Christ is alive today as he was then. And he had revealed himself to his brother Wouldn't you have liked to have been there to hear that conversation? Unbelievable. James became a leader in the church at Jerusalem, the mothership of all churches. And when Peter was released miraculously from jail and he was going to a safer place, he said to those who were present, go tell James. Why James? Well, if you read a little further into the 15th chapter of Acts or the 21st chapter of Acts, what you see, James was really the chief elder in the church. He was an apostle, really. Because in this text, look again at 7, he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. The implication is clear. He became an apostle too. So if you're a doubter, remember James, who not unlike Peter, was, he was martyred just like Peter was stoned. According to Josephus, the reliable and eminent Jewish historian of the day in 62 AD, he was martyred. Let's look at Paul. Look at verse 8. And last of all, as to one untimely born, this means miscarried or perhaps aborted, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. The story of Paul is very obvious to you. He's a denouncer of the Lord. He murdered people. He called himself a violent aggressor in 1 Timothy when he's talking about himself. And inherent in that idea of a violent aggressor is one who took life. He dragged both men and, get this ladies, women 
off to prison. He was breathing fire against those who had become followers of the way. And remember, Jesus calls Himself the way. And these new believers call themselves adherents to the way. And He was about denouncing Christ. When He was intercepted by Jesus on the road to Damascus, how did Jesus address Him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Me? Now, was Jesus present in the body when He said that? No. So what's he getting at? Why are you persecuting me? What was he saying? You're persecuting the church, which is my body, and therefore you're persecuting me. Have you ever made snide remarks about the church of Jesus Christ? And the church is not above criticism, please. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about real followers of Jesus. If you made critical, mocking, scoffing remarks about believers, about the church then you are like Saul and you've been persecuting Jesus. Wow. Be careful. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that we who make up the church are the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit dwells in us and He who destroys the church, this is very sobering, will be destroyed by God. The Lord loves His bride. And He doesn't take too kindly to those who denounce His bride. But there's hope, isn't there? Just like there was hope for the disowner Peter, hope for the doubter James, there's hope for the denouncer Paul. He was radically rearranged, wasn't he? Here's a man who was once a persecutor. Now he's a preacher. He was a religious hot dog. And now he's a humble man. He says in Romans 15, 18, I will not presume to speak about anything except what Christ has done through me. He had humbled himself. Why? Same reason that Peter had. Same reason that James had. Because Jesus was in him and had mastered him. His favorite way of introducing himself was, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. His favorite way of describing Himself. This man, arguably the greatest man, was a man who understood the grace of the Lord. He says, by the grace of God I am what I am. He says, I'm the least of the apostles. That's being very generous in his view of himself. And he didn't say that to come off sounding real spiritual. It was the way he saw himself. Arguably the greatest of all the apostles, Paul was. Perhaps you're in that category of an announcer. It's not too late to turn around and follow the Lord. Peter left the courtyard of Caiaphas and he ran out as he wept bitterly. There's no indication that he was at the cross. Had he been at the cross, he missed something very important at the cross a lot. But the first thing which Jesus said from the cross, do you remember what it was? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Surely he was talking about those who were doing the actual crucifixion. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2 if they had understood who he was, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, those people who were crucifying him. But Peter was absent. But if he'd been there, that's what he would have heard the Lord say. And I cannot help but believe when Peter and Jesus had their one-on-one, 
that that's what Jesus said in part at least. I have forgiven you, Peter. I love you, Peter. I absolve you, Peter, because I know your heart has turned in repentance to me. It's about the grace of God. You know, nobody is saved from their sins by their own goodness, their works. We are saved fully and finally by the grace of the Lord. And God transforms us. The Bible says in Romans 4.25 that Jesus was delivered over because of our transgressions. That is a judicial term. It's the idea of someone who's already been declared guilty and the sentence has been read. The punishment is ready for that individual. And it's the idea of that person being handed over to the punisher to mete out justice. Jesus was handed over to what appeared to be the Roman Empire for crucifixion. But reality tells us from the Word of God that He, that is Jesus, was crucified by God the Father Himself. It was He who really put Jesus on the cross and made Him sin so that we could be made right with God. Isn't that awesome? That verse in Romans 4.25 says this, after having said He was delivered over because of our transgressions, it says, and He was raised again, raised up from death because of our justification. We're made right with God through the work of Christ in His death and His resurrection. If He were not alive, the Christian faith is a hoax, isn't it? It's a farce if Jesus is not alive. I challenge you, take some time to look at the historical aspect of the gospel as it relates to the resurrection. It's the linchpin doctrine of Christianity. Well, let me try to illustrate what the Bible says so beautifully in various parts where it says that if we're in Christ, there's no condemnation for us. And it's all His doing, none of our doing. It's our trusting in Him. That's what we bring to the table. We trust the Lord and He gives us eternal life. And we are instantly transformed, at least in principle, in seed form. And as we grow, we become more like Him with a few detours along the way. Let me illustrate this. If I'm not mistaken, next weekend is going to be Franklin High School's prom. Am I right about that? I may not be. Maybe it's two weekends. Maybe it's four. But I know it's coming. But let's say your son has got a date for the prom. He comes to you. The Sunday before the prom, he says, Dad, I've got a day. I'm real nervous about it. I want it to go off well. Can I take the car? And Dad says, Son, you can take the car, but what I want you to do is to clean the garage out. You've been throwing a lot of stuff in there, and it looks pretty junky. I want you to clean it out. And once you do that, the car's yours. Thanks, Dad. Monday comes, no activity in the garage. Wednesday, still no activity. Friday, still no activity. Saturday, no teenage son in sight when Dad wakes up early in the morning. He thinks, what is going on? This child is trying to shirk his responsibility. So the dad's tired of looking at the junky garage. So he goes inside and he begins to clean it around the noon hour. About four he finishes. And no sooner has he finished than guess who shows up? His son. Now, he knows his son well. He loves his son. He knows his son is irresponsible in many ways and absent-minded at times. 
And when his son comes in the house, he says, Oh, Dad, it just occurred to me that the contingency of my getting the car to take my date to the prom tonight is that I clean up the garage. I don't think I've got time, Lord, uh, 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 Dad, to do this. Uh, it, probably Lord, too. <laughs> I don't think I've got time for this. And the dad says, you're right, it's too late. He said, well, I don't guess I'll get the car tonight, Dad. He said, you can have the car, son. He said, what? You can have the car. And I thought you said it was too late. It is. I cleaned it up for you, son. This is a picture of our God. The son in the little story I spun just now, he had no right to the car. He had done nothing to get the car. In fact, he had messed things up, hadn't he? But the dad came in and did it for him. This is what God did for us through Jesus. And this is what we need to understand. That whoever calls upon the name of the Lord who's living shall be saved. And if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and listen to this, and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. If you do not believe in the resurrection, you can't be saved. You may have a lot of info in your mind, but if you don't have the living Lord in your life, you're not saved. And the invitation to you right now is to be saved as you bow your head. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's what the Bible says. That belief means to open your heart and receive Christ, not just as your Savior, but as your Lord, to yield yourself to Him, to confess that you have disowned Him if you have disowned Him, to confess that you've doubted Him if you're a doubter, to confess that you've denounced Him. Maybe you're guilty on all three counts and even more. It does not matter you are to trust in Christ. Whatever is not from faith is sin, is what the Bible says. So just admit to the Lord, you've been a renegade. You've been independent. And you want to give your life to the Lord. And in exchange, He gives His righteousness to you and a full and meaningful relationship with the Father. Would you just ask the Lord that? Lord, save me from myself. Empower me to follow you with a whole heart. Thank you, Lord.